Welcome to Wisco Dice. I am your host, the Conzi with the Most, and I have been joined by... Hey guys, this is Justin, the Meeple's Champion. And this is the Ghost Walker, Matt. And I'm Suzanne. All right, and this is episode 85 of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast. Today is Sunday, October 23rd, 2021. And on today's episode, we will cover our in-depth review of Mansions of Madness. On our hobby corner, we will catch up on our miniature painting and hobby projects that we've been working on. But first, let's dive into what happened at Gen Con. So Ben and I were able to go and experience Gen Con this year, which uh, was different than other years with the reduced attendance and other safety precautions. So it was a unique Gen Con experience. Besides, obviously, the whole pandemic thing, uh, were there any, any big differences this year at Gen Con from previous years? So I th- it's hard to pull out. I've only been there one other year, so Ben may have a better idea. But there was no true dungeon there, and they had oh. escape rooms instead. Just overall, the closing of the gaming hall, uh, which was pandemic-related, just kind of made it a, like everything just kind of ended at night. When you left the hall at 10 or 11, you were like, okay, I'm not missing anything because everything is done. So those are more differences I noticed that were pandemic-related, but they were actually kind of nice because it forced you to stop and take a break. Did the pandemic restrictions, you know, affect your enjoyment of the thing? Did it matter? Was it better, worse? What's What's your feeling on that stuff? I personally like that there were less people there. It was less crowded because we were able to go up and talk to vendors and demo games. We would have just walked past otherwise. We were able to just see a lot more and experience a lot more of what Gen Con has to offer because you are not stuck standing in line to get a demo of a game or standing in a line to look and see if they have a dice tower you want to purchase type of thing in the vendor hall. We were able to get pickup games in the open gaming area, which was huge. I mean, that it was <laughs> the space was huge. There were always tables and people walking around. So I think that was a lot more prevalent was just having random people stop by and say, hey, I want to play a game or hey, you want to play a game with me, which was really nice. It was very focused on games that way. And Food trucks, you could try all the food trucks you wanted. It wasn't just which has the shortest line. They all had the shortest line. I honestly enjoyed this year's Gen Con, and I was just telling you the other day, as much, if not more, than any Gen Con I have previously attended to. The smaller capacity, reduced number of events, the re- the removal of some of the huge floor space events like True Dungeon allowed, I think, for a, a special intimacy for everyone that was there. And people had budgets to spend, so there were people buying like crazy. I don't think there was a vendor in the in the uh, exhibit hall that did poorly as far as you know being able to cover their costs for Gen Con because you know I saw people buying like crazy. And I have never experienced a, a year where I was able to go out on the exhibit hall and go to a vendor walk up to a vendor and even the ones that were super busy like the everdell booth the pandasaurus games booth 
uh, where the they had Dinosaur World and Everdell going. Yes, every one of those demo tables was packed pretty much from hall open to hall end, but you could walk up and within 20 or 30 minutes pretty easily get onto a table to play a demo of one of these games, at least get a couple of turns in and, and be able to try a game. And I was able to run into then and when we played games in the open gaming or hear people talking about how they got the demo Cora or I got the demo, demo some other of the, the games that they really wanted to check out that were at the show. Mm-hmm. Um, this was definitely a small vendor Gen Con too. Many, many vendors that weren't there. I can't remember the last time I saw a vendor on the Gen Con floor. This had this must have had to have gone back to like 2002 that actually sold like actual chainmail, like suits of chainmail. I think I even saw a vendor with chainmail bikinis. Like that thing, that's, those have been ban- basically haven't been non-existent on the Gen Con floor since somewhere in the early 2000s. A vendor selling swords and and axes and stuff like that. You had to purchase it. You did have to. As soon as you took possession of it from the booth, you had to leave the booth and take it back to your hotel. Oh, but okay. uh, uh, due to regulations, did, which Gen Con has to do it. But Have you seen Gen Con back in the day when it was up in Milwaukee? Yes. My first Gen okay. Con was at Milwaukee. I will say that even though it was you know you're talking about a much smaller gen con then mm-hmm. because it was such a it was so many people were packed in such a small facility it was super crowded where this was the full indiana convention center right so huge you know double triple the space physical floor space of what the milwaukee location had with only a slightly larger crowd i think the capacity they never did sell out a day and according to gen con Unique attendance for the weekend was pretty close to 35,000 people a day. I I don't know what that means. I could be, you know, I think probably Saturday was probably the, the biggest day as far as attendance uh, with the most events and whatnot. So that one was probably pretty close to 35,000. But, you know, and Sunday was probably somewhere in the 20,000s is my guess. Yeah, I was just curious how it compared with Milwaukee. I haven't gone as much as you, obviously, but... I've been to the Milwaukee one, and I will say it had a much different feel than the Indianapolis one because I've been to both, but I haven't been the last few years. So yeah, I mean, it's, I'm I'm actually kind of excited to hear that it was like that for you guys. So yeah, but you know what's going to happen next year is it's just going to be a record year, and everybody's going to go to Gen Con. You know, assuming pandemic things have cooled down a little bit, it'll just be the most people that have ever gone again, probably. (laughs) Maybe. But I look at the things that have grown since then. I mean, look at all the other conventions that have been growing the last few years. And I would say, at least during the pandemic, I would say they're getting more playtime than they would have without like a big thing like Origins or Gen Con or some of the other big ones having to either cancel or go much smaller. I think people are looking locally too. So the question is, will Gen Con retain its mystique? Will people mm. go back in giant or will they say, hey, you know what? I went to, you know, like a lo- the local ones like Gamehole Con and things like that. Will they look at those venues and say, you know what? I had a really good time there and I didn't have to drive all the way to Milwaukee or Indianapolis. Yeah. 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 Oh. I think Gen Con will do just fine. I think it'll sell oh, yeah. out next year and. And then, and that's really the thing. Like when Gen Con 50 happened, it sold out, and that 
that is max capacity. And un, I don't think that they have the cap- capability currently to incre- increase their daily capacity or their d- daily unique tickets beyond 70K or whatever it is. So, yeah. Oh, they were at max capacity for the venue, you're saying? It, Gen yeah, Con 50? They, oh, okay. Yeah, because they, they completely sold out for Gen Con 50. They were completely yeah. out of tickets. Yeah, that was, uh, I think that was the year I went, actually. Next year also isn't, um, I know Gen Con's not, I mean, it's a lot of focus on board games, but there's also a big role-playing component. I think it's an anniversary for D&D next year. Mm. Leave. I could be wrong. Uh, I think it's 2024 is... Is it? Okay, then I'm a year off. 50th year, 50th anniversary. But if some of the logistics delays that are occurring right now, you know, worldwide, if some of those are cleared up more, there may be releases and big releases that happen at Gen Con, which is one thing that did not occur this year in any significant form is, you know, so thing that caught, kept some people away or it made it easier for them to be away. But if you are, shoot, hey, this new game's coming out and this is the place I can get my hands on it first, unless I want to wait months for it to get shipped to me, that may drive some people coming and, you know, skipping their local cons, but coming there and just focusing on shopping. It'll be interesting to see. So what would you guys say are the highlights for you for the of the show? So we did a couple new to both of us activities that I uh, kind of signed Ben up for and said, you're doing this. And yeah, she does now every year She take, that we go. Yes. But they were very good to experience. We participated, we were able to get tickets and participate in AEG's big game night, which was a big kind of social event. And you walk away with a bag of games they're getting rid of um, and some new titles in there. So it was fun to just kind of talk with other people that we would not have normally sat for a few hours and talked to and play these games and just this kind of party atmosphere. And the thing I really enjoyed and plan to do at the next Gen Con with or without Ben is playtesting. So Gen Con has a first exposure playtesting hall uh, where designers can come and their games can be in any state of development. And they run it through and get your feedback on it. So we played a game called Mischief at the Museum. That both of us played, and it was pretty. It's pretty close to going to Kickstarter. And then I played another one focused on rock and roll or DJing that the gentleman has been working on for several years and is getting closer and refining it. So for me, that those are really interesting. Those would be the the play testing, especially, was a big highlight for me. Were you, was it, so it was the developer of the games that you were playing the game with and they taught it to you? Is that kind of how those work? Yes. Oh, cool. Yep. So the, both the games we played, the developer did teach us the game. Other games I saw there, the developers were focusing on, hey, are my instructions clear enough? So they were having the people sign up for the game, read through the instructions and set it up and everything going through that way too. Sure. How far along were the games you played in terms of production? Um, Both of them had prototypes printed up. 
the one both Ben and I played, the museum-focused game, I think he is very much uh, has a schedule and is on track to launch a Kickstarter the next several months. The other one is also, he's also been trying to launch his Kickstarter for a couple years. You know, they they had decent, they both had pretty decent prototypes mocked up. I'd say, say when I walked around, generally walked around that room, the games that I saw were in, from a prototype, per, it, it, they were farther along than like, hey, somebody scribbled on some index cards, and that's yeah. what you're playing with, or printed off on a standard paper printer, and here's my game. It was all prototype, it was for the most part all prototype level components, prototype level quality games, which for me, who hates print and play prototypes, I cannot, Suzanne loves it. She don't care. She doesn't care. Um, I, for me, not having that tangible, pretty close to reality components is a big, like I just check out having, having games that were farther along in that production cycle where they had you know, some some real components and maybe the components change a little bit when they go to mass production was much better. So I, I actually really enjoyed Mischief at the Museum. I, I it'll be one that we'll probably cover on Kickstart Monday when it when it comes out because it I, I thought it was a pretty good game. Cool. That sounds fun. That 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 kind of thing interests me. That's neat. So I think for me the biggest highlights for the show were really we sat down, I think, we had we knew we had this gap in our Saturday evening where we had nothing scheduled. We'd run out of, you know, all of the events that we were able to sign up for. Suzanne was basically able to sign up for. We finished up um, Saturday afternoon. We, we knew we had all our shopping done. You know, the, the exhibit hall closes Saturday, and we are like, we weren't really sure. We, we were thinking we were going to go out to dinner or we were just going to relax, maybe chill in the hotel and play some of the games we had. And then we decided, we went back to the hotel Saturday afternoon, caught a quick nap and decided, you know, we had decided earlier that day that that evening we were going to turn into Whisker Dice open game night uh, with all of the purchases that we had acquired at the show we were just going to go snag a table and we were going to give out promo you know stickers and teach people games and if it was just Suzanne and I playing games at at a table in in hall a open gaming so be it but it turned out to be a crazy success we had two three four dozen people come through over the course of the evening and get stickers and play games and we taught dice miner and Nike, the, I think the two hot ones we have were Dice Miner and the Night Cage. Like those were games people wanted to try, they wanted to play. We picked, we had picked them up over the course of the show. They were easier games to teach too, so it was really fast for us to teach. Like I kept tearing down, uh, as an example, I kept tearing down the Night Cage because I'm like, okay, I'm sick of playing this game at this point. I've played it like four or five times now. I want to play something different. And the next somebody else will be like, okay, well, we have this stack of games. Oh, well, I really wanted to play Night Cage. I'm like, okay, well, let me get it back out again. <laughs> so it was kind of that, that kind of thing that was going on for the evening. So those were, that was one of, that was, that was a big highlight. And then board game brunch on Sunday, that was another big, being able to do that thing, that regular weekly show that we do, that regularly blog thing that we do at, Gen Con was special like that just being able to do it there and then we actually played it twice and we had people that we played games with the night before 
come to, you know, because we were telling them about what we do for Board Game Brunch, you know, giving them the spiel of what Wisco Dice is and some of our regular content. And they actually came and participated in Board Game Brunch and played uh, Truck Off, Food Truck Frenzy from Adam's Apple Games with us, which was awesome. And you can see about that as well as more about all of our show highlights on WiscoDice.com. So, important question. You did mention Dice Miner and Night Cage, but what other games did you get at Gen Con this year? Tell us about your haul. Ugh. <laughs> we had a stupid, crazy haul that we spent way too much money on. Let's let's just say that. Um, <laughs> All right, but, highlights uh, then. <laughs> that, that's the danger of being able to walk up and also having game designers grab you as you're walking down because they want to show you their game because you know they have a few minutes. So yeah, yeah, that's what that's how we acquired Anamia, right? Yep. He, he literally was... was just standing there, just grabbing people and like, "Hey, let me t- please let me talk to you about my game." And he, would, you know, he was rotating through th- two or three or four different titles, but he showed us Anamia, and I'm like that sounds like a great fun party game. So we went and bought it, and then you know, it wasn't expensive. And then we ha- he he signed it for us, which was awesome. Like, so we have a signed copy of that game. Yeah, Dice Miner, um, which they did not have very many copies of due to issues with getting. Uh, in so but that was another one where i had this game was not on my radar i'd never heard of it before i think suzanne you had i may have passed i it wasn't on my top what's it top 22 list of games to check out though yep so and then so we were able to but we it was another one where lady we walking by and we're like hey there's a bunch of dice and whenever we're kind of walking slowly because there's nobody there there was when i say nobody there was the ex- exhibit hall, this is, I think, Thursday. So the exhibit hall was pretty busy, but there was still, like, it was plenty of space for you to walk around. You weren't getting bumped by 18 backpacks because people were packed in there, like, super tight or anything like that. You you had plenty of space to comfortably walk around and just slowly check things out that looked interesting. And so the demoer was just getting ready to start teaching another demo, and she's like, come over here, you know? If you're interested, why don't you try a demo, too? And we tried a demo and then immediately bought it. Super, super cool dice drafting game. Dinosaur World, which I maybe, I don't know if I regretted not backing the Kickstarter for, but uh, we got to actually finally play it uh, just this last week. It's from Panasaurus Games. It's very different than uh, Dinosaur Island. But uh, same, same kind of idea that you're managing a dinosaur theme park but mechanically it's a much different game and it's much different than dinogenics which i really like so it, now i have cool. these three dinosaur theme park games that are all very different games and then of course the night cage from um uh, smirk and dagger uh which is a little bit of a different kind of game for smirk and dagger you know you don't think of them being a serious kind of dark almost horror aspect kind of themed game but the Night Cage uh, is a tile-laying game. The tiles fall off the map if they do not stay lit up by the players. And the whole time, it's a cooperative experience where you're trying to get these keys. Each player needs to acquire a key, and then you all have to get to a gate before your candle burns out, which is the basically this big, giant holder that has all of the tiles that you draw off of as you're exploring this thing. So. Um, very interesting game, a lot of fun. Um, we only played it with like the the base monster and set up the 
the basic setup. We didn't go into any of the advanced setup um, for any of our plays, but I'm looking forward to getting that back to the table and throwing in some of those advanced components into it and, and seeing what it's like. So the question is, how many copies of that do you think you sold on Saturday night? Who knows? Um, <laughs> like they, I will say uh, Smirka Digger brought plenty of them to the convention, so I'm sure... And they were selling like hotcakes. Like we would right. go in the exhibit hall in the morning, and there'd be this stack that's five foot tall. And by the evening, there'd be the stack would be about, uh, you know, two games. You know, eh, yeah, you yeah, know, a, a foot more. or two tall yeah. by by the time you know close to the vendor hall. So they were selling them like hotcakes. So who knows? I would expect that there's potential that a couple of copies were sold because we were just because of what we were doing. Yeah, so there were a lot of other games I think we picked up too. Um, I will I will make make mention to Gooey Cube. I played my very first uh, Dungeons and Dragons game at Gen Con, which was uh, within the the Gooey Cube. Gooey Cube, which is a company that creates five E compatible adventures uh, and has their own campaign setting or their own world and setting. They uh, ran their their. I played in that D and D game and. Uh, picked up uh, chapter one of the Red Star Rising campaign, which they just finished the fourth chapter. And each chapter takes you through one to two character levels. Uh, the really cool thing with Gooey Cube's product is that it comes with a ton of graphical players' hand handouts, pictures of the NPCs with uh, on one side with. Um, just general text about how you know the background of the character or motivations of the character on the backside. So literally, you as the DM, as you hold out the hand up to your players to look at from your side of the screen, you can be reading the backside of it to be like, oh, okay, this guy's supposed to behave this way. And then handouts of various scenes, like say uh, some of the dungeon rooms. And when I was playing in the uh, game, like that was so helpful. Like I. I sometimes struggle in the player's side of things to be able to visualize everything the DM is telling me, um, which makes it then I kind of shut down a little bit as a player from an interactions perspective. Like that was, it made it so easy for me to visualize what the DM was getting across by being able to see, like the, just as an example, we uh, found this like creepy half-dead tree and in the tree were like two tree houses, and as you and as you climbed up the, to the the lower tree, the lower tree house, in, there was a door, and the door had some creepy words inscribed on it. But the creepy thing that I got out of it was like there was this stuffed teddy bear laying there, and I was like, "Don't touch the teddy bear! It'll probably eat your hand or something." Right? Um, so it was so easy to kind of get into that and see that and visualize that and. Um, and be able to then put it all together. And it was really well put together. It was a great experience. So I had to go pick up a product from them. So I picked up the, uh, like they said, I put, uh, bought that first chapter of the Red Star Rising campaign, The Darkest Dream. And I look forward to at some point when we get past running Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frost Maiden, maybe, uh, maybe that's the next campaign we run is, is that one. But we'll see. I could do other things. Well, did you skip over my favorite game that we purchased, Cora? I did skip it. My yellow games. That, <laughs> that was one of the few on my list that I had going in there out uh, that we did purchase. 
and in the game you're it's this rise of this empire and you play different cities and there is combat in it in a way um and not too much player interaction but you're building up this your city and trying to you know be the best and it's just it's not it's like medium crunchy level it's not it's not difficult to explain how to, the game goes but you do get a think in it and that one I've just really been enjoying a lot there were I was disappointed there were some games on my list that for whatever reason the vendors, the publishers didn't have booths there, didn't ended up not having a booth there, so I didn't get to check them out. And a few games that I was super excited about, like Cosmic Frog, that I got there and was like, oh, this is not the game for me. Um, but, you know, it was really good. We got it, like Ben mentioned, we did check out a whole bunch of games and made lots of purchases. So, oh, well, I mean, a couple of them we checked out just on recommendations of people we saw near the food trucks. And uh, we now have a date, a game... Uh, a Tinder-esque game for dating monsters, for dating dragons and everything. So, you know, we got a wide range of games there. Yeah, I will say I was uh, a little... Like, Cosmic Frog looked really cool, but it also looked super fiddly, and I was a little disappointed with that, with the all, like... All these like stacks of tiles you had to would have to set up the board. Like, it would take you longer, I think, to set that game up than it's going to take you to play it. Um. So and the and the art on the cards was really super noisy. Like it's a very specific art style, and some people really love it, but I found it very super noisy. Um. So yeah, we as much as I kind of wanted to come home with that one just because it sounded silly, fun, and kind of crazy being giant space frogs, I just didn't make the cut but uh yeah i was really annoyed that like the biggest game i was looking for was uh was it origins first builders or something like that from uh oh, board yeah. and dice wasn't at the show that's too bad that one that one looks cool yeah i i may have backed that one i have to go check my kickstarter stuff <laughs> yeah it's pre-order right now from board and dice um i don't think board and dice did a kickstarter for it i think it's they think Maybe it's literally pre-order pre right now it recently then yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was up for pre-order during Gen Con, so you could have pre-ordered it with like a. They had a special thing, but yeah, you couldn't get a copy of it at the show, or you couldn't even play or demo or see a copy of it at the show. So that's too bad. Yeah, was, there were then there were a couple of others that we were like, yeah, the vendor here for this one isn't here. The game is pre-releasing at Gen Con, or it's available on their website at Gen Con, and they released it with Gen Con, but it was not at the show itself. And that that is it was that was probably my one thing I will take from this year's Gen Con that was disappointing was that normally you go to Board Game Geek and you see the list of games that are coming out of Gen Con and you can go to see any of them at the show. And this year that wasn't the case. And I actually commented, I think, on Facebook on Board and Ge uh, on Board and Dice when they were promoting Origins at, you know, during the show uh, and that you could pre-order it, I was like, it would have been really nice if you could actually see the components and try it at Gen Con. They didn't have to bring it. They could have literally shipped a copy or two and had somebody just have it set up in their booth and then yeah. just tell people that were at the show, go look at it. at Because that was actually something I think like... Um, there was so there was a vendor that had a bunch of like FFG to, uh, fantasy flight games titles 
um, including some stuff that was, uh, I don't know that they had anything that was, you know, that was just to, hey, check this out, but they had some stuff that was like relatively very recent or releasing very close to Gen Con. And it was straight that like they they had, and there were some other vendors that had some stuff that was exclusive, like bigger game stores that were on the show floor that had some exclusive uh, titles from various game manufacturers that weren't at Gen Con, but wanted to make sure that they had a presence there, so they shipped it with these game these you know larger local game stores that had a presence at Gen Con. So that was unfortunate for for uh, Origins, and I'm I'm still super excited for that game. One thing I just realized, and obviously way too late, that I I don't know what uh, Gen Con Online had that maybe you could have watched and joined online for Gen Con to see some of these releases that were releasing at Gen Con but weren't physically at the show. I guess I could have so, spent all night from midnight to like right. 6 a.m. instead of sleeping watching Gen Con Online uh, <laughs> yeah. content. Yeah, why didn't you do that? <laughs> I know. Why didn't you, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. No, you we had a super full Gen Con. Yes. Yep. yep. I but, mean, and it was good. Not some being able to see as many games as we are, were able to and go, you know what? I can see this gameplay and this is not the game for me. Probably helped our pocketbook because if the lines were long, most likely I would have been like, oh, I really want this game. It looks cool from what I've read. Who cares about the demo? I don't have time to sit here for two hours to get a demo time. I'll just buy it. Maybe that was just me. I spent less that way. I don't think we spent less. I spent less. You may not have. Oh, that's how. You didn't spend <laughs> anything in 2019 either. You just made me spend it all. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think you spent more this year. Um, okay. Anyways... You can see more about what Konzi and Suzanne did at Gen Con on our blog at wiscodice.com. If you want to play games with the Wisco Dice team or meet us, we will be at GameOlCon in Madison, Wisconsin next. GameOlCon is October 21st through 24th. We will have plenty of swag, including stickers available for anyone who walks up and mentions they're a fan of the show to us or plays in any of our games, or just happens to be walking by and we decide to give you a sticker for whatever reason. Um, we'll probably have some other stuff, and we'll be showcasing our new awesome t-shirts uh, that unfortunately are only available for us hosts. But hey, you know, if you're really interested, maybe we can uh, get a t-shirt run going in the future. But for now, let's dive into our Hobby Corner. Hobby Corner is where we talk about what miniature hobby projects we have been working on. So I'm going to go ahead and get started here uh, with uh, my project, which has been basically doing a lot more 3D printing. Some of that I can't talk about because my players in our D&D campaign have not experienced it yet. Can't hint to you guys that are playing in an exciting Icewind Dale Rime of the Frost Maiden campaign. Expect more cool stuff to hit our table for vi visuals here in the near future. But uh, I also printed this really cool. It's a small, old, kind of worn cottage, which is the largest 3D printing project I have ever done as far as size size of a of single print like i think the the base and the roof of this thing each one of those are two that's two separate pieces and each one of those took something like four to five days to print um 
at the print settings that I used. So just amount of plastic in a single piece, amount of print time. It actually started making me nervous and thinking, man, I don't have my printer on a UPS. If I lost power any time during this like five-day print, I would be so upset. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sometime in the future, I think I'm going to get a UPS so I can for my uh, printer so I don't have to worry so much about those longer print runs because I can see the quality of this building. I, I mean, there are things that I need to do to improve my skills and my you know settings that are on my printer but the quality of this print uh and the way it looks visually like i can't i don't have the skills to be able to build this on my own in a reasonable amount of time in the same amount of time with foam core and traditional terrain building techniques like this this thing's actually really pretty cool and i could i think i could make this building in foam core um, it's just the, the time is, uh, in, you know, form core and some uh, balls of wood or whatnot. I could probably build this, this building myself and, you know, with those materials, but yeah, I'm super ecstatic about that. And that's, that's making me very happy. And I'm so glad I bought the and Creality Ender 3 when I did, because it's turned into a big asset. And next up, I've got some things. I think you, Suzanne, you pointed out for Everdell to print, uh, that I'm going to print. And then I've got some other board game components stuff that I'm going to print. And then I'm going to print start working on probably another building or two so I can start fleshing out this fantasy 3D printed town that, I will, that I'm starting to work on. Because I, I wanted some more buildings. Ultimately, I wanted more buildings that were a little more Icewind Dale feel and that fit the campaign because there will probably be some more encounters uh, inside the, what, the various 10 towns. And being able to have a few more buildings that are appropriate and just look a little cooler, uh, potentially even with the ability to pop a roof off and then have like decor and stuff printed and put inside for the players to interact with. Is there, you know, maybe uh, going through an encounter just, I think, ups the level of the game experience for everyone at the table. So that's my hobby project. Yes. So. Uh, Anna and I, my wife Anna and I, have been playing some Mansions of Madness Second Edition. I I'm starting to work on painting some of the excellent minis that come with that game. So I am taking my first crack at, at a at a larger model. So the hunting horrors in uh, Mansions of Madness are kind of a winged worm, and I wanted to attempt a painting a larger model uh, than sort of a standard mini size uh, with some unique features like these big wings and also experiment with some new colors that I haven't uh, really messed with before. So some, I'm looking at doing some kind of other, you know, otherworldly bizarre colors for these things, like some, some bright pinks or purples maybe, um, and trying to find some interesting blends to give them an otherworldly feel to them and, and, potentially some kind of horror feel, make them a little creepy or just strange looking. So I'm getting that project going and we'll uh, throw up some images on the blog as soon as I have something cool to show. All right. And I think that gets us through our, our hobby corner for this episode. The rest of us just haven't been getting to the hobby table as much. Uh, it's the fall and 
And that's a very difficult time for hobby, but we will definitely try to get our hobby mojo going a little bit more and do some more projects. And as we get into the, the later fall and the winter months, I get very excited to see what all of you guys put together and work on. So with that, let's talk a little bit about extra life. Wisco Dice will once again be participating in extra life. It's been several years and quite a few host changes since last time we participated in Extra Life. For those of you who aren't familiar with Extra Life, it is a charity fundraising event for various children's hospitals across the country where gamers get together, streamers, video game players, tabletop gamers, all of us get together and play games for a 24-hour period every year by on a date that is set up by Extra Life. So this year is no exception, and we're going to return to form. But this year, we will be running various events online using tools like our Discord server, Board Game Arena, and others to play games. Beauty about playing online is that it gives you, our listeners, an opportunity to play in the game with us. In order to play, you just have to let us know which events you want to play on and be on our Discord at the start times. Wonder where you can find those start times? Well, we'll have a blog post out here very soon and to let you know what events, what the start times are, and when you can get signed on to play. There's no obligation, no requirements. Just choose an event, be on the Discord at the start time, and... Uh, as long as there's capacity, you can play in the game. That said, if you do want to ensure that you get to play in a session, then donate to the Whisker Dice team on Extra Life. Proof of donation to our Extra Life campaign will give you preferred access to our events. Effectively, if you show up on time and an event is full and you donated and someone else didn't, you get you get a seat. Of course, always subject to the person who is running the games, if there does have to be somebody kicked from a game, of course. Any donation size, though, is acceptable for this. We'll have a link to our Extra Life campaign. If you just feel like donating, please do. It really does mean a lot to us. Game day will be November 6th, 2021, so make sure that you get those donations in to help us uh, help with Good Eyes support the Children's Wisconsin Hospital and... Uh, Play a few games along with us uh, if you have the opportunity. And for now, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we'll dive into our review of Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Woot woot! Hey folks, this is the Conesy of the Most. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about Misty Mountain Games here in Madison, Wisconsin where you can find CCGs, RPGs, board games, minis, paint and hobby supplies for your all of your tabletop gaming experience and needs. If you can't find it online, give them a phone call or swing on by their brick-and-mortar store uh, here on the east side of Madison. Don't worry, that is MistyMountainGames.com. Check them out today. All right, folks, welcome back from break. Today we're going to talk about Mansions of Madness, the second edition. So Mansions of Madness 
it was published by Fantasy Flight Games, and the playtime can vary dramatically depending on what Sidera you're playing. It can go anywhere from as short as 90 minutes to several hours, and it will support one to five players. Now, I've had the opportunity to play the first edition and the second edition of this game, and I will tell you, it is quite a bit improved going from first edition to the second edition. So, going into the game components, Konzi, you want to talk a little bit about the miniatures in this game? Yeah, so this this game is very dependent on a boatload of miniatures, who, which are all very nicely sculpted, very unique, uh, represent uh, both the investigators that represent you as the player, and all of the various mythos gribby, gribblies that you're going to encounter in the gameplay. Uh, Mansions of Madness is a game about uh, exploring the mythos, the Cthulhu, the HP Lovecraft type narrative things. So when you go into uh, these miniatures, you have things like Star Spawn and Cultists, and uh, then of course the like 1920s ish investigators, and they're all very tropey uh, as far as you know and cliche a lot of these things. But that's what part of what makes this game great. Uh, and then the miniatures are all of relatively decent quality. They're 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 board game miniatures, so they're a little bendy. The plastic's a little whatever. The big thing that I'm an, that annoys me about the miniatures in this game is the basis for the monster monsters. And I think this is a holdover from uh, first edition uh, Mansions of Madness because you were able to port all of those monster and miniature components over from first to second that you you already had in your collection. The miniature bases are designed to be able to slide a cardboard tile into that gives you some details about the monster on it. But then the monsters never, they like have peg holes where you're supposed to be able to push the monsters into those peg holes. And I would say 50% of the time you can actually get the monster in the peg hole, which is frustrating. <laughs> so then the monsters are, and then the monsters while you're playing the game are falling off the bases where you have to pick the, the things up to look at stats that are on the bottom side of the base. And so there's, there's some clunkiness from a, the miniature perspective that way. I'm actually, for my copy of the game, I want to rebase all of the monsters and then simplify the monsters with a monster reference sheet rather than deal with the lousy bases for those miniatures in that come in the box. But the the game itself well makes up for that, as we're about to see. Uh, Suzanne, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the game board and tiles? So one aspect I really enjoy about this game is that the game board you build throughout the game. So as you go on your journey and discover different rooms or different areas, you pull out new tiles and the app will tell you which tile to find and how to lay it out to make this map. So you may start in the lobby of a hotel and decide that you're going to explore a certain doorway that you see. Well, you don't, you have no clue what's behind it. So these, these double-sided tiles are very detailed, uh, looking like it's like you're looking down into the room, and they're to me they really add a lot to the game, and it's amazing how you can use the same tiles in so many different scenarios, and they just add the theme, add to the theme of each of these scenarios. To move around, you do have characters. Justin, do you want to kind of tell us about these characters a little bit? Yeah. So each of the uh, characters that you can play, one of these investigators, has 
a set of abilities uh, like strength or agility or willpower, and they have some abilities that they're good at and some abilities that they're less good at. For instance, one of the characters, Rita Young, is kind of an athlete, so she has a very high strength, uh, but her influence is very low. So she's not going to be able to sweet talk anybody. You choose the, an investigator as a player at the, at the start of the scenario. Uh, and then also each investigator gets a special ability. For instance, the, the Rita Young I mentioned is athletic, so she gets to move a little further every time she takes a move action. Other characters might let you re-roll dice when you take when you perform tests, uh, which is really helpful. Um, and some of them might gain clue tokens for certain conditions, like passing a horror check or defeating a monster. Uh, so you can, as a group, this this is a cooperative game. So as a group, you can choose your investigators wisely to get the uh, a useful combination of abilities and special abilities to work together, picking characters who all have really low health, probably a bad choice. You might want to make sure there's some stronger folk in there in combination with people who might have lower health, but are really good at passing like lore checks when those come up. So beyond that, once you pick your characters, the app will give you a selection of starting items. And there are a huge deck of items in this, in this game. There's uh, standard items with things like crowbars and lead pipes as weapons, bandages for healing, holy water, candles, basic stuff. And then there's special items, which might be a magical amulet that could protect you from spells or from going insane, potentially. Beyond that, there are actually spell cards as well that characters can use to uh, attack monsters or potentially heal or things like that as well. Uh, so there's a, a lot of very uh, variability uh, each each time you play. When you start a scenario, you could get a wholly wholly new set of items that could completely change how that scenario plays out based on what it assigns you. And then there are also decks of cards for the terrible things that can happen to you, like getting injuries and wounds, which might be things like a broken arm or a broken leg, which changes what you're able to do on your turn. Horror cards, which give your character negative conditions and eventually drive you insane, which can completely change the way you play the game, as well as just bad condition cards like being stunned or dazed, which prevent you from taking actions or gaining the benefits of like rolling for clue icons when you roll for tests and things like that. All those cards as well potentially have alternate effects on the backside that can add some more variability when you play too. This game leverages custom dice, uh, which is very typical from a Fantasy Flight game. Those dice have clue symbols on them and, and whatnot. But it leverages the dice in a very unique way. So when you're resolving actions, as Justin alluded to on, on say, your character card, and you have an ability like, say, Strength, and it's represented with a number of, say, four. That means you roll four dice, and then input, uh, typically, uh, like a Strength check, you'll need X number of successes, or you might need, you might not even know how many successes you need, so you're just going to, hey, roll a Strength check and see, tell the app how many successes you had. 
and then based on that it will tell you what happened uh so it's it's a very simple but yet elegant system of leveraging these dice to be able to roll things uh to roll these various checks and you just you just look very quickly hey i have this many dice and i roll them and then uh, i can use clues to convert uh, clue symbols on my dice rolls to successes, and if I have enough successes, good things happen. Yay! Successes. All of that is really dependent on the app. And without the app, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition wouldn't be what it is. 1st uh, Edition leveraged an Overlord player to take the role of the app, where they would have to set up the map, and you had the map completely set up at the beginning of the game with these stacks of tiles and they all had to be very set up very precisely. And if you made one error in setup, it could dramatically impact the investigator player's ability to be successful and be able to solve things. Because the stacks would have, maybe uh, you might get to a point where there's a story element that the overlord would have to then explain to the players. Uh, and that would tell them, oh, hey, I need to go over to the kitchen and find the kitchen to do this thing. But if the stack was messed up, eh, sorry, you, you've been playing for two hours with a 45-minute or an hour setup, and sorry, you couldn't, uh, you, you messed up, and the whole thing was for naught. Where second edition puts that all in the course of the app, which makes the app very exciting, uh, because it also sets up that element, as Suzanne mentioned, when you explore a new tile, the app tells you what you explore. You don't know what's on the other side of doors or certain areas. You have to actually explore it, which makes exploring much more uh, interactive and interesting and gets you a bit creeped out. Like, oh my goodness, what's going to be behind this door? The music that the, the app uses really helps set the ambience and the mood. Uh, the art that also is included with the app also includes, uh, you know, that gives you that that you feel like you're looking at 1920s kind of creepy art that goes with it too. The app does a couple of other things. It really does balance the game automatically with the player count and accessories, the various items that are given to players, so that if you're playing a game with only two investigators, is a two-player game, you tell the app the two players that you've picked and the two characters you've picked and it auto balances the game for you you don't have to do that balance so it's very flexible that way really in my opinion make this game from a game that was really kind of hard to play and you had to be super precise to a game that's very playable and now approachable and simplifies a huge amount of the the mechanics of the game so that you can just focus on having fun as the player what are your feelings about the app? Is is it does it help your gameplay? Do you not like it because it's introducing this piece of electronics into the gameplay? What do you guys think? I personally feel like and I've I've played several games that have an app that comes with it. I really really love it. And I feel like the nice thing about the app is before you had somebody who had to play the Overlord, which is basically the person that's playing against you. So you're not you're not really participating in the game. You're controlling the narrative. And with the with the app, it keeps those elements so that everybody else at the table can participate, and they're part of the story. It's just the storyteller for me. So I really really like it, and the fact that um, and and I I believe. 
Ben, when you did it, we did something similar. Uh, the last time I played this game, I, my wife has a Bluetooth speaker that we connected to her tablet to do this. And the ambiance and the music playing through a Bluetooth speaker, speaker just, I feel like, adds something to the game. So, um, I don't know. For me, it's a really big addition. I think it's it's a great it's a great transformation of the board game genre to include multiple mediums. So, you know, it's not just online, it's not just on the table. You can combine that sort of online randomness with the, you know, and and a tablet combined with the game. I have to 100% agree with Matt on the impact it has on immersion it cannot be overstated how good a job the app does of creating a sense of being in this world and thematically driving the game it really makes it great i think there are some downsides than the way that the app works sometimes and one scenario that came up when anna and i were playing recently is anna's character had the option to there was someone listening at the other side of a door trying to break into the room our investigators were in. And she had the option to break down the door. Uh, she was playing a strong character. She said, okay, I'm going to break down the door. And she rolled three successes uh, on her roll. Really good. We were very excited. When she went in to put her successes into the app, she accidentally clicked the confirm button when it was at zero. And there is no way in the app to go back and change that result to what it should have been looked for an undo button or anything like that couldn't find it luckily this happened at the start of a scenario so i ended up resetting the whole scenario and starting it up again which didn't impact us too much we had to get a whole new set of items instead of the ones we started with so that kind of just uh, the slip of a finger could potentially totally change the outcome is a little frustrating so that's maybe the one downside i see is you know, depending on the device you're playing with, a really a smaller tablet. We're using a smaller tablet to do this. You know, there's no way to undo what you did, so that's a little bit of a downside. Ultimately, it's I think entirely a benefit to the game. It's really smooth, and it makes it possible to just play with two players and not worry about managing all the rules in the background. Yeah, that's uh, very similar to what I was was thinking there, Justin. Is that it? helps with the immersion it helps with the the game flow too it does every time we play it again i have to remind myself which buttons on the tablet which icons i tap for what and i don't think i've made a mistake we haven't been able to undo or has been costly for us but uh that would be my biggest complaint i guess with the app is just remembering what you know, you, icons you tap for what, but it does really help with the flow. Yeah, I think if they, there's one thing I wish the app, besides, you know, having a quick back button or a option for a, are you sure or something on a couple of those checks where, you know, it, it's very critical to the game, uh, like the breaking down the door example you just had, uh, it would be that it starts each scenario with this amazing voice actor narration of setting up the story and the story elements. And it's really cool and typically very uh, kind of a, a creepy 
telling of of what what's happening. But then when you hit all of the future story elements throughout the rest of the the game, or start interacting with uh, various, maybe there are people that are at a party that you're going to, and you're talking to these party. It's just text. You have the creepy music in the background. So it clearly, from an application perspective, it has access to do the speech, but it they didn't, you know, they they decided for whatever reason, I'm sure cost and whatever. But I would really have loved it if they would have had voice actors for those those extra interactions to help just add that immersion and ambiance to it instead of just reading the text. That would have been really cool. That was my one observation. It's not a it's not terrible. It certainly doesn't impact the game, and I'm sure there's people out there that are super glad that it doesn't have voice actors and just has text. So why don't we talk a little bit about just the gameplay and and our experience with that. Vanches of Madness Second Edition is a fully cooperative horror mystery dungeon crawl, I would say. Some scenarios are more combat oriented and you're going to be fighting the cultists and the horrors and the other monsters that show up in Lovecraft mythos. And some are more puzzle oriented. Uh, You're solving a mystery and you need to explore this mansion and search out all the clues and evidence that you need to figure out what's going on in the scenario. And there are puzzles actually in the app that you can solve too. Tile sliding puzzles, combination puzzles. Um, so for people that are more interested in the mystery and the puzzle solving, there's there's definitely in, that in there too. One made minor complaint I, I do have about the way this game plays is, as Ben kind of mentioned, there is a lot of text to read. Thematically, it's really well done and well written, but I think that it could be a turnoff for some players. For example, every time you attack a monster and a monster attacks you, there's a small paragraph to read that describes in cool, gory detail what's happening. It might be that the horrible deep one spits up a nasty glob of goo at you and you need to roll an agility check to dodge that and avoid damage. With a lot of monsters in play or over the course of time, I think it can get maybe a little tedious to read those paragraphs every time. But for some people, I think that's just going to thematically boost the game even further. Uh, it definitely is fun those first couple times to to read in detail the 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 combat details. They're always they always change. They're different, and thematically, it's great. But there's a lot of text to read. Gameplay is fairly open ended. There's a lot of choices for what you can do as actions on your turn. Basic stuff would be moving around the map and exploring things. Obviously, attacking monsters that are there. But you can do some surprising things too sometimes, like stealing items from other players. That's just an action you can take. You can also, notably, set fire as long as you have the ability to do so, essentially at any time, which is a unique thing I've never really experienced playing this game. But it's like a standard option that you could just set fire to a room. I don't know if you guys have ever played a a scenario where that was like a good option for you to do but i thought that was just interesting that it's an open-ended thing you could just start a fire somewhere and it'll spread and hurt people and hurt monsters too being open-ended the game allows you to make mistakes in that way too and if you spend too much time exploring around and checking every corner you may be in trouble by the end of the scenario the game doesn't hold your hand you can definitely make mistakes and waste time and get the investigators killed 
any other kind of gameplay highlights for you guys that might set this apart from other games? Yeah, I mean, I think the time crunch pressure, and you don't really pick up on it, but the game does escalate if you take too many rounds to complete the game. And there's no actual round tracker. You don't, you know, you know unless you're tracking it manually, you don't know how many rounds you've been doing things or where the round, where it starts to escalate the game into more and more challenging things or difficult monsters or how much harder it is going to be to overcome the ritual at the end uh, or whatever it might be that's 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 ramping up the escalation. It, it builds up that tenseness and, and builds up that anticipation of like, oh my god, I need to move, but I really want to investigate all this. I want to explore everything. I want to unlock. I want to know everything that there is to know here. So it's a really interesting balance of trying to discover and explore versus I need to hurry up and get on with it before it really gets bad. So you really have to do some analysis with all of the text it's giving you to try to put together what are the best decision points for you to do? What are the best actions that you can do as a group where the things that you want to go investigate versus man i really want to look at that picture that's on the wall but is a picture of some relative's face really relevant to where this is going like what i need to do you're weighing those decisions at every time every opportunity when you're interacting with the app and that really for me, really drives up that immersive narrative and makes you feel that like tension and tenseness as you as you progress through the game because you're you're like oh hey um, I, I reference the like you're at a party and you're talking to the guests and and I remember that that mission uh, pretty I think I've done it a couple times but you're never you're never quite sure you're like trying to figure out who which one of these guests might be a murderer. And you're you're running around talking to these people, and you're then you're talking with you know your other players like, oh, do you think it's this person or that person, or do we have enough? Who do, who should we go talk to? Because you're trying to optimize that for the amount of th- those actions for the amount of time before everything hits the fan and you're in deep trouble. Yeah, I mean, I do think it you know favors storytelling over the perfect game balance though i mean the storytelling is amazing but there is a fair amount of randomness to the game because i mean i've had times where everybody's had really awesome dice rolls and it feels like we're just rolling through the game and then all of a sudden it's like oh my god nobody can hit the monster or we need to get this one lore check done and nobody seems to be able to do it or we just need that one item and and then you just like you watch everything cascade into this pit of hell very quickly. But I mean, but the storytelling I think or works really, really well. In you this need that character game. with lore, and they're on the other side of the map. And it's like, oh, it's going to be two or three <laughs> rounds for for them to that'll to, only take you know, like move all yes. the way over there. <laughs> Get to where you need them. Yeah. I was I was just going to go off of a little bit with Ben. Conzi was saying with you need to balance out your investigation and moving through with also you need to balance out your characters that you're selecting, which is how you are moving through there. So that if you get into a situation where you need someone stronger with lore, that they 
are focusing on those type of checks and are able to run over there. Uh, so I like to play fighty characters. So I need to make sure that I don't get bogged down. If I pick a fighty character on examining every little detail in the rooms, but make sure whoever else I'm playing with does have someone who can explore and do that. So I think that's really important with the gameplay is just to make sure you have a balance, not only with what you were doing and spending time on, but a balance on who your characters yeah, are. There's so much exploration to this game are. that it, benefits you to spread out as a as a tactic but then all of a sudden like you said you like to play the fighty characters well i'm kind of the counterpoint i like to play the the more mystical explore lore characters what will almost inevitably inevitably happen is that we will split up because it's more efficient to explore and then you're on like one side of the map i'm on the other side of the map and i'm the one that triggers the monsters <laughs> So, so now you're having to dash all the way back so you can get in. You can yeah. do what your character's good at, while my character is going, "Oh crud! Oh crud! How do I evade and get away from this thing? Because I can't do anything to it." Yeah, you can definitely benefit from being together and being able to be cooperative and passing items around and things like that. But it does seem smart to spread out as well and and really just. Be get all the map opened up to to figure things out. One aspect I also, we haven't mentioned yet, is as the game progresses and your character experiences these horrible otherworldly things happening, you take on these horror cards, which, if you get too many of them, can eventually drive you insane. And when that happens, you take uh, an insane card, which has some special secret condition on the back of it, which can affect how you play the game, or how you win the game and could impact how cooperative your character might be in the in the game as well. Uh, maybe not quite a hidden trader mechanic, but can almost get to that point of now I have a little bit different goals than the rest of the players. Oh, uh, surely nothing bad could ever happen there, Justin. <laughs> uh, but just another another aspect of gameplay that adds some fun thematic twists and a little randomness at the same time. All right. So let's do this. Let's talk about where we would rate the game. So here at Wisco Dice, we rate our games on the same scale as the board game geeks, one to 10, where one is absolutely garbage and you should totally pass to 10 that is an absolute must buy and play. So me personally, I, I'm a little in between eight, eight and seven. Um, I do think the app is amazing. I understand there's some quirks, but nothing's perfect. I just feel like this game went from where in the previous edition it was very, I don't know, unapproachable and became a really long game to one that you could actually throw on the table in a reasonable amount of time, depending on the scenario, and has enough immersion and depth that it's just fun to play, even if there's some fiddly bits with it. So, Justin, what do you think? This game is a seven for me. Narratively and thematically, it is just a great experience very fun it's a perfect october halloween spooky time game but it can sometimes be a long game to play obviously depending on the scenario that can change but it can go long and that is maybe a little bit of a downside i think also it can be disappointing if you aren't expecting to 
this to be a game where there's a fair chance you're going to lose the scenario. It's a Lovecraft world mythos type game and bad things will happen and do happen. So you should go into the game expecting that, you know, not expecting to win every time. So seven for me. So I really do enjoy this game. I don't know that I've ever straight up said, no, I don't want to play it. My, I rated it as a six though, and mainly for the components and having, and the time it takes during gameplay where you have to stop and sort through the stacks to figure out which is the right component that you need, whether it's a monster, an NPC, or it's one of the tiles. So I think for me to rate it a little higher, I need to figure out some better organization for our copy to make that go a little bit quicker. And um, that's otherwise it's a it's a nice game. It's a good game to play with other people. I mean, obviously, it's a cooperative game, so you do want to play with other people. But it is a fun game to talk and play yep, So this through. game, I'm going to rate pretty much where everyone else on this game rated it at a 7. It's a game I'm almost always up to play, but between the monster bases being a bit flaky, flaky, and Suzanne, you did have a great point that I didn't even think about. We do have quite a bit of content for this game with expansions and whatnot. There are a lot of expansions for it. I think we are pretty close to having all of the expansions in our in our copy of it. And because of that, it the app you don't know what monsters you're going to experience during the game. You don't necessarily have, you know, what items you're going to make, you know, at least then you can just sort through a, a deck of cards. But digging through this massive pile of monsters to find the right tile and then stick the monster, the right monster figure in the base and then have it pop out and whatever is is frustrating, it's time-consuming, and I wish there's a better way to handle that, that it would have been able to provide that out of the box. Like, hey, these are potential monsters you might encounter during this mission as part of the setup, so make sure you have them set up to the side or something when you're setting up the game. Overall, the game is one of the most immersive storytelling narrative games that I own in my collection. I clearly love it enough that I've bought a ton of expansions for it. Uh, it's a really solid game, and if you're like me and you enjoy narrative games, this is a game I would recommend. And like I said, I, I put it at a seven. I've run it at conventions. It's it's definitely a game that I enjoy, and the app just makes this takes this game from being miserable to play to really quite fun to play. And with that, that wraps up our episode for today. We covered Gen Con and all of the things that Konzi and Suzanne got up to at Gen Con. We covered our hobby, talked about Extra Life and what Wisco Dice is doing for Extra Life this year. And then we dove into Mansions of Madness and gave you our thoughts and and feelings about this great narrative app-driven game that lets you discover the mythos. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts. Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Ah, oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, P
Peace out.